You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. We're getting very close to the end. We are in the last chapter of John starting today. We've been going through this book of the Bible for quite some time, but uh, we will look at 19 verses or so here in just a minute. But I also wanted to know, we're going to pray at the end of the sermon. We're going to take a few minutes just to give you a heads up. We're going to pray for the college students that are among us. This, for many uh, great students, uh, especially if they're from out of town, this is your last Sunday with us, either before you graduate and go to wherever God would have you, or maybe before you just leave for the summer. And so we want to take a few minutes for you after the sermon today before we sing our closing song to pray for you. So uh, we look forward to doing that uh, for you and with you uh, before we conclude today. Um, but in thinking of today's sermon and this passage, and, and you'll see why in a moment, but I was thinking of the phrase that we throw around in our culture a lot where we say, forgive and forget. That's become kind of just common vernacular in our society where we talk about forgiving and forgetting. And it's this idea, people mean different things sometimes when they say that, but this idea that if you really forgive, uh, whether you're the if forgiveness is really going to happen between two parties and there's been offense that the best way forward is to just try to forget that it happened, to try to move forward with it and just put it out of mind. And although I have some serious reservations about that idea that is not quoted in the Bible, there's, there's reservations I would have about that. The question I want us to think about involves those two ideas today, and it's about our relationship with God. We've done immense wrong against him. And the question that I have asked myself, and I, I think this text asks of us today, is when God looks at our offenses, the wrongs that we've done towards him, and even when he forgives us of those things, does he forget them? Does he intend for us to just forget them? To put them out of mind, to put them in the rearview mirror, to bury them, to never think about them again? Or could it be that God actually in his love and kindness wants us to remember them. He wants us to actually have our failures sometimes pointed out to us and brought back to mind, whether they're from the recent past to yesterday, whether they're from decades ago. What could it be that he actually wants us to remember? And if so, why? Why would a loving God want that? Every instinct, I think, in us, especially if we're Christians, wants to answer that question and say, a God of grace and love and mercy that's forgiven those sins would never want me to remember them. I never want me to call those back to mind, but I think this text may suggest otherwise to us, that God actually does want us to remember our failures, to remember our sins, but that he has good intent as he does. And so we're going to pick up the story. We're right near the end of John's record of Jesus' life. This is uh, the records he has given to us of even how Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. We've been for almost a few years now, honestly, which has been wonderful, but been going through the book of John, seeing Jesus' ministry and life down into a granular level of the miracles he did and the signs he did. But the ultimate culmination of this story was at the crucifixion when Jesus was lifted up on the cross and then when he was buried in the tomb and then they found it empty that Sunday morning following. And Jesus has appeared to his disciples a few times now. We've looked at those the last couple Sundays, if you've been able to be with us, that the one who had died, Jesus, is now alive again. And John had seen him, and he recorded how Jesus started slowly revealing himself to his disciples. He did it the day he was raised from the dead. He did it the following Sunday. We looked at last week when he revealed himself. And now this, what we're going to read about today, is the third record that John gives us of Jesus appearing to his disciples 
And so we're going to mostly focus on verses 15 through 19 of John chapter 21. But I want to read the whole thing. I'll read up through 14 to start and pause just so we kind of know the context of what's going on. But this whole story, this third appearing of Jesus, is really bent towards talking to Peter. Talking to the one who had denied him, the one who had rejected him, who had abandoned him that Thursday night before Jesus was crucified. But there's some context that's helpful to to get us up to speed before we look at those last several verses. So follow along with me in John chapter 21 in your scriptures, verses 1 to 14. John records this for us. And he was there when it happened. He said this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's also Sea of Galilee, sorry, no, same place. So he revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, so he's far away, so I may shout a little bit because it's kind of like he's yelling to them. Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off, or they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. I would note that. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught, have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So without getting into much detail, I just want you to know this. We don't know when this took place. Jesus stayed on earth for about 40 days after he was raised from the dead. We don't know what he was doing every second of all those days. But one of those days, one of those mornings, he made his way up north. The disciples had gone back to Galilee. uh, And he meets them there, seven of them at least, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, who've been fishing all that night. I don't know if Jesus was watching them or what, but he's there in the morning time. And he calls out to them like we read about, and they have this miraculous haul of fish after they've been working the whole night and had nothing. But the tension has been being built here by John on purpose as he's written this between Jesus and Peter in particular. And we're going to see it come full full effect here when we read these next few verses. But I want to remind you what had happened the night before Jesus was crucified because it's going to make the rest of what we read really significant. Jesus was crucified on Friday. 
Uh, John, who wrote this story, recorded several chapters worth of things that happened the night before, Thursday night, the night before Jesus was going to go to the cross. There was a lot that Jesus taught. There was a lot that he did. He washed their feet. He had a meal with them, for example. But that night, one of the things that had happened was that Peter, and I believe we'll have this up on the screen, back in John chapter 13, Peter had said that he would die for Jesus. Do you remember this? He said, I I will lay down my life for you. So in, in John chapter 13, verses 37 to 38, John had recorded this from that night, that Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. No, he didn't include the other disciples. I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So this would have been like a stab to the heart of Peter, this guy who was saying, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. In fact, you're going to deny me this very night three times. What happens if you keep reading, even in John's record that night, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was taken to the, the courtyard of the high priest in Jerusalem. And as his trial, his joke of a trial was beginning, Peter had made his way there and was in the courtyard. But if you remember back in John eighteen eighteen, it was around a charcoal fire that Peter had been sitting and had people three times ask him whether he knew Jesus had asked him whether he was one of his disciples, and Peter said no, repeatedly. He did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. He had denied him, denied him, denied him, and got more intense even as he did. We don't know what happened to Peter after that. We don't have record of him till the empty tomb that Sunday morning, a couple of days later. But we know that Jesus has seen him before this story. We know Peter was in the room. That son, he had come to the empty tomb. He didn't see him there. But later that evening, Jesus had been in that room with the disciples where Jesus had come. And he'd revealed himself and shown it to him. But we don't have any record of what he said to Peter, if anything. And we know Peter was there the next Sunday when Jesus appeared again. But again, we have no record of him saying anything to Peter or Peter saying anything to him. This is the first interaction we see of these two men. And the tension is thick. Like you could cut it with a knife is an understatement because Peter had just boldly, overtly, like in flagrantly denied Jesus. This one who was going to die for him and who's been raised and there probably would have been question in his heart and the other disciples' hearts. What, how's this going to be resolved? Like is there this royal failure? But what's going to happen between the two of you? And so I want to read you the rest of this story, John twenty-one fifteen to 19. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. So John continues this record of what happened that morning. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of God. I think from this section of this story in particular, we see this very simple truth that we'll start with today, that Christ reminds us of our failures. We're going to try to have some of these come up for note takers or just helps you track along uh, as we go some of the points today. But we see from this text that Christ reminds us of our failures. Jesus wanted Peter to remember that Thursday night. Jesus had already died for those sins. He'd already atoned for them on the cross that Friday when Peter was doing who knows what. Jesus had already dealt with those sins on the cross. He'd already borne them. But this morning, when he comes on that seashore, he wants Peter to remember them. Everything about this story is making that clear. Every detail. They, that night, that Thursday night, they had had a meal together, right? Before these denials happened. This morning, they have a meal together. That night, there had been a charcoal fire around which Peter had denied the Lord. And Jesus made a charcoal fire for this meal that he wanted him to be sitting around when he would address them. The number of questions that Jesus asks him, you probably noted that he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because Peter would have had seared in his memory that three times he had said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. The content of the questions we're going to see is intended by Jesus purposefully to point Peter back to that night, back to his failures, back to the ways that he had denied Jesus. This was not something that was new to God, new to God the Son, Jesus, new to God the Father, this idea of reminding their people of their failures. I was thinking back through the Old Testament, and one passage just came to mind way back in the book of Deuteronomy even. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7, there, there's this text where God had rescued his people out of Egypt, out of, out of slavery, out of bondage there. He had miraculously delivered them. And as they came ready 40 years later after a long story, I don't have time to get into, but they come ready to enter the promised land finally. One of the things God said to them, Deuteronomy 9, 7, One of the things he wanted his people to do was he said, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. And so God has always had this heart. He wants his people not just to forget their sins, not to just put them in the the rear view and never think about them again, but that he wants us at times to remember our sins. To remember the ways that we failed him. To remember the ways that he denied, or that we denied him. But why? Why would he remind Peter that morning in front of those other disciples of his sins? Why would he tell the Israelites, remember how you provoked me to wrath? Why would he tell you to remember your sins? Whether of last night, or last year, last century. Why would he tell us 
to do these things, to remember the sins of our past. I think as an umbrella statement that we'll unpack this, Christ reminds us of our failures, and you see it even in this passage. He reminds us, us, us of our failures for redemptive purposes. It's not just to, to, to belittle us. It's not just to make us feel small. It's not to crush our spirit. It's not to embarrass us. It's not to shame us. It's not to just vent on us and just he remembers something and just spews anger at us. When he reminds us of our failures, it is for a redemptive purpose. It is for our good. He is not like a parent who just scolds their child and remembers things that they've done yesterday or the week before and just reminds them and heaps guilt on them or a boss who does the same thing. When he reminds us of our failures, it is an act of love. It's an act of grace to us to either show us things about himself or to teach us things about ourselves or to grow us in certain ways. It is never just to hurt us. It is to help us. And so he, he reminds us of our failures for redemptive purposes. And you see this unfold even with Peter. And we're going to look at in the time we have today four redemptive purposes uh, of why God reminds us of our failures, why he would remind you even of your failures. At first, I think you see in this text, uh, especially verses 15 to 19, you see that Jesus reminds us of our failures to grow us in humility. He reminds us of our failures to grow us in humility. I, I would note for you how these questions start. Okay, There's a lot of parallel questions and answers and responses between uh, Jesus and Peter and then Jesus. It's kind of like a tennis match, similar shots back and forth. But it starts with a question that has a little tag on the end of it. Did you note that? Three times Jesus asks him some variation, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But did you know how he asks him the first time? He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's how he starts. Do you love me more than these? What he's asking Peter to compare here is not Peter's love for various things. Like, do you love me? Jesus asking him, do you love me, Peter, more than you love these friends of yours? Do you love me more than you love these fish? than these boats and whatever. Uh, he, he's not asking Peter to compare Peter's love for various things. He's asking Peter to compare Peter's love for Jesus with the other disciples' love for Jesus. And he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than John loved me? Do you love me more than Nathaniel right here loved me? Like, do you love me more than your brother right here loves me? Do you love me, uh, Peter, more than these other guys love me? Do you love me more than these? And I think Peter, we know later in this passage, he's grieved when he hears these questions. But this first one, I think, would have dug deep in him. Because he's remembering that night, right? He's remembering that he had told Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. These other guys, they may not, but I will. And he had been so sure of himself. He had been so maybe even cocky and spiritually prideful that he thought, if everybody else fails you, I will not. I will succeed. I will be faithful to you. And Jesus had told him, no, you won't. And he didn't. And Jesus is wanting, I think, as he asks him this question, he asks him in front of these other apostles. He wants them to hear this question. Do you love me, Peter, more than these guys love me? Because you used to think that you did. 
but your life has shown that you don't. That night showed me and showed you and showed us that you don't. You don't love me more than these. And I, Peter would have felt the dig of this. And even how he answers, he, he doesn't really answer saying, still in typical Peter fashion, like, yep, I love them. I love you way more than these guys, Jesus. I, I, I blow them out of the water with my love for you. He just says yes and says, you know, like he's just talking to me and Jesus, you know I love you. And that's how he answers the rest of these questions. I know that I love you. You know that I love you. And he's not comparing himself anymore to these other disciples. Because his life has shown, his failures showed him. It showed the other, his friends that he didn't love Jesus more than them. He was not some sort of spiritual superior to them who was incapable of falling. This is one of the reasons that Jesus shows him and points him back to his sin. And one of the reasons he does to us at times is to lovingly knock down pride that wells up within our hearts. To think, I am better than my brothers or sisters. That everybody else in this church, everybody else in this group, everybody else in this family and this community may fail, but I won't. I'm better than them. I'm stronger than them. Jesus wanted Peter and he would want us to combat that temptation to see ourselves as spiritually superior. To think that we're immune from things that everybody else falls victim to. This same Peter, later in, in the book of 1 Peter, wrote to early Christians. He said this, the same vibe says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter learned this lesson, I think, this morning to to not count himself as greater than these other followers of Jesus, but to know based on his failures, based on his past, that he was not superior to them, that he was not greater than them. Humility is such an important virtue in any Christian, but especially if there's going to be a Christian who becomes a leader, who becomes a pastor, a teacher, a a mentor uh, within the life of God's people. Because if we're, you see this with Peter here, even as Jesus is commissioning him and giving him responsibilities, he's also making him humble. He's also reminding him, you are weak. You are powerless on your own. You are guilty on your own. Like you are, ought to be humble and have healthy doses of humility in your life. And if he's going to use us for great purposes, if he's going to use us to do big things, he often and usually, or maybe always, I would say, begins by knocking us down a bit. By, by not making us think we're God's gift to everybody else, but realizing I am broken. Like I am just as in need of forgiveness and help as everyone else. And we must be people, especially if we're leaders who are marked by humility. Jesus wanted Peter to be marked by humility. He wants us to be marked by humility. And one of the ways that he grows that within us is to lovingly remind us of the ways that we have failed. To lovingly point us back to those things, not out of anger, but to show us how weak and powerless we really are. To show us our need of him. And so he reminds us of our failures to grow us in humility. You see that with Peter, even as he begins these questions. As he continues piling up the questions, the second thing I would say that he reminds us of our failures to do is to grow us in compassion. This is a similar idea, but to grow us in compassion for fellow Christians. I'll note a few things from this interchange with Jesus and Peter here. One would be, I already mentioned this a little bit, but the number of times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times. And he was trying to point him back to that night to remind Peter, I think, you didn't just deny me once. 
You denied me three times that night. After I told you you were going to do it, you denied me three times. This wasn't some accident. It wasn't some just understandable slip. You denied me over and over again that night. He wanted him to remember the degree to which he had fallen. He wanted him to remember how vulnerable, powerless he was. And then I want to know for you too, how Jesus, when every time Peter says, you know that I love you, you know that I love you, you know that I love you. It's it's interesting to me that Jesus, when he responds back, uses language of sheep and shepherds. He he three times uh, tells him, verse 15, he says, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he says, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he says, feed my sheep. Jesus could have said, Peter, then teach my disciples. Care for my followers. Things like that. He could have said, used language like that, but he on purpose, and this isn't the first time he's done it, but he uses language of dumb, helpless animals that, that are left to themselves. They're going to be destroyed and be eaten, and, and who knows what. They're, they're going to die. They're going to be destroyed, and he uses that image. Because he's wanting Peter not just to feel bad for his sins, but he's wanting him to be able and be ready to lead other people. He's wanting him to remember what he's about to entrust to him, that this task that he's going to have is is not just to, to work with other upstanding, noble people, but to care for sheep. Like to care for people who need guidance, who need protection, who need love, who, who are vulnerable and often powerless, left to themselves. And I, I think it's, it's no coincidence that, that Jesus is trying to grow Peter, even as he's telling him to take care of his sheep. Nobody calls him his sheep, not Peter's sheep. Even as he's telling him, take care of my sheep. He's also, I think, wanting to impress upon Peter, you're a sheep too. Like shepherds in Christian circles, myself and other pastors here, and anybody, any of us who are leaders within Christian circles, we don't attain some like special status than the rest of our fellow Christians. We are fellow Christians with you. Like we are sheep with you. Peter was not just, he was entrusted with shepherding tasks, but he was a sheep too. And Jesus wanted him, I think, to remember, yes, I'm going to give you some responsibilities to care for these people, but you're a sheep too. Do you remember that night, Peter? You remember the ways that you failed, the ways that you were kind of just wandering, disobeying, straying away from me like a sheep? Like, you're a sheep too. You need help. You're not just the one to impart it, but you need to help people, and you need to have compassion as you do. Like, you, you are taking care of people who are vulnerable, people who need guidance, who need sometimes challenge, who need instruction, and he wants him to be ready to show compassion to show patience to people. Remembering our failures, being pointed back to them, uh, whatever they may be in your life, being pointed back to them should be something that grows in you a sympathy towards fellow sinners. That grows in you a compassion towards them, especially to those God may entrust you to lead and care for, whether it's within your home or your business or within the life of the church or in the community. You need to be someone who has compassion towards the people you're leading, who doesn't just look at them and get so frustrated with them and think, how could you do that? Like, what are you thinking? And just lash out at them and think that you are somehow different from them, that you are somehow superior to them, that you are no longer in need of other people's help. 
If we forget our own failures, we very easily become callous towards strugglers. We become very hardened towards people who are, are combating temptation, who are, are failing in their life. We're like a boss that forgets what it's like to be an employee. Or a coach that forgets what it's like to be a player. Like we are still players. We are still employees. We are still sheep even when we're entrusted to shepherd. And Jesus wanted Peter to remember his failure so he would be a compassionate shepherd. So he would have patience with the sheep that he was leading. I want to for the people you're leading doesn't mean you don't confront them. It doesn't mean that because I've sinned and, and we and you sin, we're just fellow sinners here and I don't ever speak toward you and challenge you and, and sometimes address the, the sin that's in your life. Quite the opposite. Jesus is confronting Peter here, right? The most compassionate human being ever is confronting Peter here out of love. But he's doing it compassionately. He, he's doing it lovingly and graciously towards Peter and he's trying to model for him to do the same. And we ought to be, we would be wise to listen as well that when God entrusts people to me, yes, I need to confront them. Yes, I need to challenge them at times. Yes, I need to discipline my child. Yes, I need to correct this person. But I need to do it with a compassionate heart. As someone who is a fellow struggler, as someone who has an immense long list of failures myself, I need to have patience with those and compassion upon those that I am leading. So he reminds us of our failures to grow us in humility, to grow us in compassion. But I, I think you see two last things as we get towards the end of this passage uh, in verses 18 and 19 two more ways that jesus uh, graciously moves in us by reminding us of our failures and i'd say them this way one is to point us to his cross and then in a few minutes we'll look at the idea that he reminds us of our failures to prepare us for our cross this third one is the most important that he reminds us of our failures to point us to his cross because you know how this passage ends verse 19 Jesus says very simply to Peter, he says, follow me. So what's he been, what has he just talked about in verse 18? Follow him in what? Follow him toward what? Toward what end? In verse 18, and even the start of verse 19, we see that Jesus is telling Peter, and we'll talk about this in a second. He's telling him, Peter, you're going to die for me. Your hands are going to be stretched out on a cross just like mine was. You're going to be dressed in things you don't want to wear just like I was. And he's telling him, someday you are going to die for me. And he says, when he says, follow me to that, do you know what that reminds Peter of and what ought to remind us of? Is that Jesus went there first. That Jesus went to a cross first. He went to a cross for deniers like Peter and failures like me and you. He wants Peter, even as he is asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's wanting Peter to remember his love of him. He's wanting him to remember, Peter, I love you. And he he subtly but clearly reminds Peter that I died for you first. Like I laid down my life for you. He had said just that same Thursday night he had told Peter, this would have gone in Peter's ears. Jesus had said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend. And Jesus did just that. He had laid down his life that Friday for Peter. He had taken Peter's sin, even those denials of that night itself, he had taken upon himself when he went to the cross. God the Father had counted those failures of Peter to Jesus. 
and Jesus suffered and died for them. And even as he's reminding Peter of his failures, this is so important because I want to speak this to you as well. Even as Jesus is reminding Peter of his failures, he is more importantly pointing him to his cross. He's not just pointing him to his failures to make him see, you failed, you failed, you failed. What a failure you are. He doesn't want that to, to the message to stop there. He wants to, him to see, you are a failure. But I took your failures, I took your sins upon myself, and I died for them. I suffered for them. The things that should be coming down on your head came down on mine. And he's wanting Peter to remember, I died for you. And when our failures are brought before us, when we're reminded, I hope that God, for many of us, is reminding us this morning of some of our failures, even recent failures. And when God points you to your failures, what do you do with those? Like, what's he want you to do with them? There's all sorts of things we could do with them. One thing is we could deny them. We could deny those things and say, I didn't do that. Like, and I would just say to you, who are you kidding? Like, if God is convicting your heart, why would you say, I didn't do that? Like, that is nonsense. Like, do not deny it. When, G- when God confronts you with your failures, even this morning, don't try to run away from it and deny that it happened. We could try to ignore them. Even if we don't deny them, we could try to just suppress them, kind of put them out of our mind and just forget about those sins, forget about the things that we've done in rebellion against our God. We could just think, well, I'm not going to go there in my heart and mind and just try to forget them. But that is not wise either and not what God would want for you. Because he doesn't forget them and he doesn't ignore them. We could try to justify them. We're reminded of our failures. We could try to make excuses. This is the one I'm most guilty of. We can try to make excuses for ourselves or explain why we did that, why we were rude to this person, why we were selfish, why we were hateful, why we were a Scrooge to someone, why we were this or that. We could try to justify it instead of just owning it. But you need to feel the weight of your sins. God wants you to feel the weight of your sins. Lovingly, he wants you to feel the weight of those. We could, when we're reminded of our sin and the weight of it, we could just stop at this step where we feel shame for it. There are many people who grew up in the church who stop here. They know their sin. They know their guilt. They feel shame for it, and they just heap shame upon themselves. Shame shame like how could I do that why do I keep doing this what a failure I am what a failure I am and they they beat themselves up maybe that is you this morning you're beating yourself up for your sins how could I Jesus would want to press you further beyond that beyond that sense of conviction and guilt he he made Satan may tempt you to go a step beyond just feeling shame and even have this response when you're reminded of your sin where you try to atone for it or you try to say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get right with you, God. Like, I'll, I'll give to this love offering. I'll, I'll do this. I'll be nice to everybody. I'll, I'll, I'll do X, Y, or Z to make it up to you, God. And we, we try to act as if we can just scrub out our sin, that we can deal with it ourselves. All of these possible responses to the identifying of our failures are worthless. They get you nothing. They don't do anything to resolve your problem. But looking to the cross, Jesus does. 
Like that is where Jesus pointed Peter, and it's where he would point you as he stirs up the the reminders of failure in your life and rejection of God. He wants to point you to his cross and say, I took those sins. Don't ignore them. Don't deny them. Don't minimize them. They are bad, and they are many. But I took them upon myself, and I suffered for them 100%. Look to my cross, and you can find forgiveness. You can find peace. You can find relief from this shame that you feel. You can find forgiveness and eternal life. And I would want you to know in this room today, Jesus will not deny any denier who comes to him in faith. So any person who comes to him and says, I am guilty as guilty can be. But I know that you died for me. I know that you bore those sins upon your cross. Please forgive me. He will not deny you. Like he will not turn you away. He will receive you, and I would call you to do that today. If you've denied him three times, he'll forgive you three times. I promise you, you've denied him more than that. If you've denied him a thousand times, he will forgive you of a thousand sins. Past, present, future, he will clear them from your record, having borne them on the cross completely. So receive the forgiveness, receive the love that he wants to extend you, that he demonstrated to you upon the cross. Look not just to your sin, but look to the cross when he reminds you of your failures. Jesus wanted Peter to look to his cross, but he also was preparing Peter for a cross, wasn't he? He was preparing him for suffering that awaited him. In verse 18, he talks about how uh, when Peter was young, he used this image, like, you dress yourself, you did what you want, life was easy and smooth. But he talks about how in older age, Peter's hands are going to be stretched out, and he's going to be dressed and carried to a place he didn't want to go. And if that sounds poetic, and we think, well, I don't know what he's talking about. John tells us what he's talking about. He says that Jesus said that to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. I thought about this. I was thinking, man, imagine being Peter here. You could feel like, man, he just got pummeled by Jesus if you're not understanding the text right there. Like, do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you love me? And then it's like, it could feel like it's this last hook, like, and you're going to die. Like it's a punitive thing or like it's some judgmental thing, but it is not. He's commissioning Peter to feed his sheep, to care for his sheep. He's commissioning him. And think about this. When he tells him, you're going to die for me, don't hear it as, you're going to die, Peter, like it's some judgment. But remember what Peter had said that Thursday night. He said, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus didn't actually say, no, you won't. He said, will you? You're going to deny me three times. But Jesus knew, I think, even that Thursday night, that someday Peter would lay down his life for him. That's what happened to Peter, according to church history, is that someday, long after this, he was crucified. He was put to death. And Jesus is wanting Peter to know he is a changed man. That he's changing him. That, yes, you denied me. Yes, you ran away from me that night, but I am changing you, Peter, and I'm getting you ready for suffering. I'm getting ready uh, to, to show through you things you never were capable of on your own as you face temptation, as you face the threat of death someday. And though the literal crosses don't await probably any of us in this room, probably even martyrs' deaths don't await many, if any, of us in this room, suffering does await us. Temptation does await us to abandon Jesus. 
Grief does await us. Dark moments, dark nights of the soul do await us when we will be tempted to abandon Jesus again, to deny him again. And Jesus wants us to be ready for those things. And it's interesting that one of the ways he can get us ready for future temptation, future suffering, is to point us to our past failures to remind us of the ways that we have failed in the past. There's a famous quote that a man named, I think originally there's different attestations of who said this, but a man named George Santayana said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Have you heard some variation of this quote before? Uh, that, that if you don't know the past, you're doomed to repeat its failures. And that is true in our life. That it is a blessing of God to remind us of the ways we fell short in the past the ways that we abandoned him in the past because it prepares us for similar temptations in the future. We remember, when we remember our past sins, we can remember the tactics of the enemy, right? We can remember the ways that Satan kind of connived himself into our heart and mind and soul, the bait he used to tempt us. We can remember those things. I'm a sports fan. I love watching sports and wishing I could be a professional athlete. And I've noticed in recent years with technology advancing that athletes often can, even in real time in a game, have like snapshots of like the previous inning or the previous drive if they're a football player. And they can see what the opponent did, how they arranged things, how they strategized and the schemes that they used in that sport. And they can look at what that enemy just did and be ready for the next one. They can know how to, how to respond, how to, how to change. And the same is true in our life. When we remember our past failures and don't just put them out of our mind, we can actually remember the places we were vulnerable, remember the things that got into our heart, and we can combat our enemy more knowingly. When we remember our past failures, it prepares us for the future temptations and future crosses because we remember the sourness of failure. Peter remembered what it was like that Thursday evening going home. He remembered that sinking feeling when he said, no, I don't know Jesus. And when we remember our past failures, we, rem- we ought to remember the sourness and the hollowness and the, the futility of those things that we ran after, the things that we decided to do. There's an author I like who said this recently on Twitter. He said that sin always looks better through the windshield than through the rear view. I was thinking that that is well said that we can remember, man, what was attractive about that thing to me, but then how did it feel after I did it? How did it feel after I abandoned God? And that can motivate us for future obedience. We are capable of learning from the past. I, it was funny, even as I was sitting in my office preparing for this sermon, uh, I should have thought of this this week, but even this morning, I was reminded there in my office, you could go over there if you want to see it sometime, you can, I could show you. There is a window there, and there is this cardinal who literally about every five minutes flies into the window. Not in the window, like to say hello to me, but literally into the window. And it keeps doing it and doing it and doing it. And it keeps hitting its beak on the same window. And animals don't learn that. Maybe more advanced ones can, I don't know. But that bird's not learning It's not feeling the pain of its beak, but as human beings and as the people of God, like who've been saved by Jesus, when we remember our past failures, whether they're from last night or from long ago, we can remember how it hurt. 
We can remember how hollow and empty it was and say, I don't want that. Jesus is better than that. Obeying him is better than that. I am going to obey him, and I can obey him. Jesus is telling Peter, you can and you will obey me. The thing you were powerless to do, you can do and you will do, Peter. And he would say the same to us when he points us to past failures. He's not wanting us to just sulk and feel our guilt and our powerlessness, but he's wanting to know, I died for those sins, and I've given you my spirit to change you, to obey me, to have power now to do the things you never thought possible, to combat the temptations that you were so vulnerable to before. Jesus, in this story, he wanted the other apostles there to know that Peter's love for him was sincere. Despite what Peter may have wanted, he wanted the other apostles to know that Peter's love for him was sincere. He wanted Peter to know that Peter's love for Jesus was sincere. He doesn't tell him, you don't love me. His answers assume Peter does love him. He wanted the other apostles to know. He wanted Peter to know that Peter's love is real. But more than that, Jesus wanted Peter to know that his love for Peter was real. That his love, Jesus' love for Peter, was unwavering. It wouldn't ebb and flow. It was constant and perfect and would last forever. You may be tempted to, to buy into the world's philosophy of forgiving and forgetting. That the best thing is just to forget the sins of our past. But forgiving and forgetting is not the life of a Christian when it comes to our relationship with God. It's more, I would say this, that it's a life of remembering and rejoicing. Remembering that we do have sin. But rejoicing that we have a Savior. Amen.